Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm quite interested in the effect of landscape on people. And it turns out, I mean, if, say, in 1850 or whenever it was, when Ruskin arrived in Chamonix, up to that point, people just thought of landscape as just a damn nuisance, too much snow, dangerous glaciers. And Ruskin changed it all. He, he made people see it differently and understand that these things had a kind of numinous quality, you know and even a religious character and change like that and I think that more and more now people see themselves in landscape I don't mean that everybody runs around pretending to be a tree or something like that or a mountain but the sense that landscape has an importance and I'm interested in landscape and particularly in South African landscape but I do believe there's kind of a trend to think that landscape is designed for our benefit. The Boers, particularly when they trekked, which is when they left the Cape Colony to get away from the British, uh, they were just thought they'd entered a sort of biblical land mm. and mountains and things, so then were biblical and they seemed to be giving them the go-ahead to take these parts mm. of the country. How does landscape affect us and can the world around us shape our thoughts, action and emotional behaviour? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, in tonight's show, we're going to meet with two South African writers, Justin Cartwright and Peter Hayne, men of considerable insight, opinion and bite. Justin Cartwright talks to me about the reliability of history and our shared culture and memory. And can socialist thinking save Britain? And should we all say no to austerity? Peter Hayne makes the case for democratic socialism as robustly argued in his 20th book, Back to the Future of Socialism, published by The Policy Press. This is a show about truth and history, poverty and greed, experience and the case against austerity. But first, writing is not a frivolous activity. It informs everything I do. The words of South African novelist Justin Cartwright. Justin Cartwright was born in South Africa and has lived in London for over 40 years. Justin's writing has been compared to American heavyweights such as Philip Roth, John Updike and Saul Bellow. Justin's books include The Promise of Happiness, In Every Face I Meet, Other People's Money, Lionheart and The Song Before It's Sung. Justin's intriguing novel, which is based on the friendship between philosopher Isaiah Berlin and Adam von Trott. Well, Justin's latest book, Up Against the Night has just been published by Bloomsbury and is a fascinating journey through one man's understanding of South African history. I asked Justin about his narrator Frank McAllister, a middle-aged wealthy South African who has lived in England for over 30 years. Frank is a descendant of the Boer leader Pete Retrief who was hacked to death by Zulu King Dingan in 1838. I was interested to know something Frank said at the start of the novel. Much of what I know has come to me as a gift from books. I have relied heavily on books in order to understand the world. I put it to Justin. Is there such a thing as novelistic truth? 
I think there is. I think there is. I think it's pretty obvious that countries, places, understanding of self, understanding of nations is often crafted or comes out of a sense of what people have read in novels about their own society and the, the things that worry and concern them. Frank, your narrator, talks about what he's learned through books. And I'm just wondering how we understand our world through the books that we read and how we shape our lives and our ideas through the books that we read. I think that its influence might be diminishing to some extent. Mm. But I mean, in my own background, living in South Africa, there was no television, there was a bit of a radio once in a while. But um, I learned everything that I knew about books. I was completely passionate about books and I understood the world from what I read in books. And I don't think 8,000 miles away from Europe, I was any worse off than people who were closer to what I was reading. But yeah, I think it's essential. And I think that it's pretty obvious, it is a cliche, that when you read a book, you bring your own imagination to bear. And that's the difference. And it's something you sort of create in cahoots with the writer. Now, this is your 13th book. What question were you asking yourself when you set out to write this book? Or what did you want to figure out for yourself? I wanted to write a book about South Africa. I've written one called White Lightning and I thought I'd do another and I, my family have an interesting background in that one of the Boer leaders, I'm a direct descendant of his and it struck me that it's important to be woven somehow into the fabric of the country and I've been living in Britain for so long I wanted to write another book about about South Africa, that largely set in South Africa and my thoughts of what's happening there and what I understand about what's happening there but at the same time I, my books are not really strictly manuals of any sort, I try always to have some humour and mm. some quite big ideas in the mm. same book, something really I took from Saul Bellow. And there's quite a lightness to the book in some in some of the relationships and there's some terrific images and of landscapes and it's it's very gratifying to read. But under it there's a darkness and there's a dark energy in some of the characters and some of the events that happen. Can you talk to me about the political situation in South Africa and how you've used an historical story to look at the cultural landscape of South Africa today. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite interested, not specifically for South Africa, but quite interested in general for the effect of landscape on people. And it turns out, I mean, if, say, in 1850 or whenever it was, when Ruskin arrived in Chamonix, up to that point, people just thought of landscape as just a damn nuisance, too much snow, dangerous glaciers. And Ruskin changed it all. He, he made people see it differently and understand that these things had a kind of numinous quality, you know and even a religious character, and change like that. And I think that more and more now people see themselves in landscape. I don't mean that everybody runs around pretending to be a tree or something like that or a mountain, but the sense that landscape has an importance. And I'm interested in landscape, and particularly in South African landscape, but I do believe there's kind of a trend to think that landscape is designed for our benefit. And I think Robert McFarlane, who's written a great piece, which I quote, he says, we read landscapes, we interpret their forms in the light of our own experience and memory and that of our shared cultural memory. It's a very powerful quote, isn't it? And it applies to South Africa. Mm. I mean, the Boers, particularly when they trekked, which is when they left Mm. the Cape Colony to get away from the British, uh, they were just thought they'd entered a sort of biblical land Mm. and mountains and things. So they were biblical Mm. and they seemed to be giving them the go ahead to take these parts Mm. of the country. And it's a very haunting and vivid landscape. But I suppose that the memories and experiences that the landscape is holding on to is part of the narrative, the story of South Africa. And one of those is the story of your Boer relative who went out and essentially got butchered 
But there's a story to that, isn't there? And Frankie is trying to figure out that story. I think Frank sort of believed that the story, the given story of my, our ancestor and what he did was heroic. And But Frank doesn't totally believe that. And a certain amount of research that Frank made and that I made suggests that it wasn't nearly what it's been sold as. It was basically a takeover that was in the minds of the Boers. And the Zulus understood it. The king understood it, and he he actually said later, he realized that it would be better to kill them now before they tried to take our lands. And it wasn't the sort of glorious myth of South African legend. It was something entirely different. Mm. Even the term the king said, kill the, the witches, and what in fact the real translation of the word in Zulu is mm. those who are the malevolent people. Mm. It's rather like, you know, bad witches and good witches, mm. benign or, or not. And it's really that term means... Those people are always irretrievably mm. seeking to do you down mm. in some way. Mm. So you could sort of understand a person who had everything, mm. you know, thousands of women, lots of warriors and vast kraal, mm. which I've actually mm. been to. There's mm. not much of it left, but it's still mm. very moving. Uh, but it was a clash of cultures. The, the mm. Afrikaners believed somehow God had sent them up mm. north and they could take whatever mm. they liked. And Dingan understood, where, Dingane as is now mm. called, Dingane understood mm. perfectly well why they were there. And language, as you as you bring out in the book, can play tricks with you, but also history. And Frank believes strongly that history has been not necessarily misinterpreted, but certainly isn't as clear cut as it as it is written. I think that's always true, though. Mm. You know, you, when you use a little bighorn or somewhere, when mm. you get the true story, it's mm. never quite what it's touted as. And South Africa has been has suffered from this sense of its overwhelming sense of self-importance mm. in the apartheid time amongst white mm. people, but also a lack of understanding or even interest in the other people sharing the same land. Mm. It was as if two countries lived between one set of borders. You know, mm. the novel explores Frank's understanding of the political landscape of South Africa today and the story is very cleverly put together through his rogue cousin Jacko. I'm just wondering how much a part does fear play in all of this between cultures, between traditions? Well I think uh, Frank makes the point Mm. that this the first massacre, Mm. that wasn't probably the first one, but the massacre of his people was in fact I think to some extent, I think, and I've given this attribute to Frank, that that was probably the start of apartheid. Mm. That The idea the Boers had that unless they kept black people under control, and in, which is really mm. exactly what apartheid is, and separate mm. from mm. the white people who followed, there would be some kind of a massacre, yeah. or more massacres. Now, your father was the editor of the Rand Daily Mail in Johannesburg, and I think when you were in your late teens, Sharpeville would have happened, the Sharpeville massacre. And your father had, had, was known for speaking out against apartheid. And you grew up very much knowing that speaking out had consequences. It's true. I mean, my father was one of the leaders. He was quite a mild man. Mm. He wasn't a radical mm. in any shape or form. He wasn't a communist or anything. Mm. But he was just a very decent person. Mm. And he could see, as most sensible people could, that this was very unjust. But I can remember mm. the planes flying overhead the, the, that day. They flew low over our house, although it was some way mm. from where the massacre had taken place. And the irony of this is that there, there were 37 people roughly killed at Sharpeville. Mm. In the recent riots, the black mm. president and his cohorts had 37 workers killed. They were just they were just hoping to stage a strike and they were shot. Awful, awful repetition of what yeah. happened in 1960 or It's a frightening twist in terms of history, isn't it? Yeah. It's, how do you explain that or can you explain that? I don't think you can explain it. I think that it just was, a, again, fear and fright mm. of these workers coming up the hill with sticks and assegais and so mm. on. It may have been, in a way, the same sort of thing mm. that happened to Sharpeville where really there was no threat, but the police suddenly panicked and started firing on innocent people. 
In Up Against the Night, throughout the book, there is a undercurrent of violence spread throughout the whole book. And your narrator, Frank, is always aware that things can change and change very fast. How has that gone down in South Africa? Well, I don't know yet because I haven't been. I'm going in a couple of weeks' time. Mm. But the history of South Africa is basically a history of conflict. Mm. If you read the detail of who Mm. killed who Mm. over the past 300 years, Mm. it's astonishing. There are all kinds of small and bigger skirmishes Mm. which result in somebody being killed. It's one of the interesting things and more hopeful things about South Africa at the moment is that there are a few young writers who are actually analysing what's really happened, Mm. you know, beyond the myth and what Mm. happened. Why, for example, without going into any great detail, there's a fine book about a young white farmer who was assassinated, quite clearly assassinated. It wasn't just to steal or anything. And he went into and discovered what the grievances were and what had led to this. Mm. Whereas the white farmers who lived there just assumed that black people were naturally likely to kill you if they got a chance. It was nothing like that. And so this is the effect of a more outward-looking group of writers and not just writers, of course, but it, so there's that hope that people are beginning to understand their relationship better. Now, similar to Kutsia, you live outside of South Africa and you've spent, I think, nearly maybe 40 years living in London. But do you feel, in terms of having a voice on commenting on the situation as state of play in South Africa, do you think it's fair that as somebody who's now an outsider can comment on things like that? Uh, yeah, or can I... use a book in ways to address some of the social and cultural inequalities that are happening in South Africa? I know Kohitsi has done it quite successfully. Yeah, I haven't ever taken sides, so to speak. Mm. But what I've done is I've written a lot of journalism mm. about, and I've made some films actually, mm. about South Africa. And I try to be not to be subjective. Mm. But that must be very difficult because you've been born in a place, your family goes back several generations, you are historically linked to a great Boer leader, so it must come at you in some way. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, writing the book was, I found very interesting because mm. I, I didn't realise I'd have this connection. Mm. I mean, I knew I was descended from him, but I didn't know for sure how this would turn out. But in the, in the course of the book, Frank says, at least I do have a history in South Africa, I'm not just a person who arrived from nowhere. Mm. You know. And I think I slightly accept that, think yeah. myself that way as well. But I mean, the question of the races and Yako, the slightly yeah. demented cousin, he represents for me this tendency towards violence. Mm. What Nadine Gordimer told mm. me was a tendency towards genocide. And you were actually quite friendly with Nadine, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Um, you knew her from your college days, was it? Well, she lived very near us. Yeah. When, when I, even when I was a student in South Africa before mm. coming to England, mm. she was two or three houses above us and mm. was already very well known. And yes, I didn't know her fantastically well, but mm. I've interviewed her three or four or five mm. times for the BBC and for one or two books and newspaper things. But she was an interesting person. I, I think in balance, although it's slightly cruel to say this now that she's dead, I think she's a better activist than she was novelist. That's very interesting how you say that. She certainly took enormous risks, certainly when she was younger, in how she protested against apartheid and put her life at risk. And that came at a cost. Yes, I mean, actually, she was she she was never in any kind of danger of being locked up or anything. And she had she was quite wealthy mm. and she had a beautiful house. Mm few blocks above ours, actually, which wasn't quite so beautiful. Uh, but she, she had a privileged life in a way, and she had access to everybody. And she was always meeting well-known writers mm. around the world and so on, or judging. So, so she had the life she wanted. My point was not... I think her early books and short stories mm. are absolutely wonderful. Later, she developed a style which I just don't... It's just my opinion, but I don't think it worked particularly wonderfully well. And every book post-apartheid was sort of schematic. Everybody stood for something. And it was a bit too obvious, I thought. I found myself enamoured, 
let's put it that way, by Frank, your narrator in the book. He's a very reflective character. He's learned from his mistakes in his previous marriage. He's been humbled by life. He's also a very lucky character. Who were you basing him on or what were you doing there? I don't see him as one particular person, mm. but this sort of nexus of having a house on the beach and a house in London is mm. quite common amongst mm. the wealthy South Africans. Yeah. And they do this kind of pilgrimage every year to enjoy the landscape and the sea and everything, and then they go back to London. And I put Frank in that bracket. I mean, he lived mm. somewhere very expensive, but he also had a tie to South Africa. Mm. I don't believe, for example, that I've been asked to explain how I can pretend to know about mm. South Africa when I basically live in England. Mm. But I don't see that as a problem. If you mm. have views and they're reasonable and they are what mm. you really believe, mm. why should you be unable to express them? Yeah. You know, when I was in a, into a meeting at a literary festival and the three or four journalists there were saying John Kutsir was a traitor, he'd left the country that made him, you know, and he'd gone off and made his, but he hasn't given, given anything back to the country. Words to that effect. And then they turned on me. I mean, to be honest, I wasn't quaking my boots or anything, but this mm. sense that somehow if you're brought up there, you're not qualified mm. and you should shut up. And, mm. uh, but in, in truth, maybe I'm probably the second best known writer in South Africa after Kutsia now. And I think we, in a sort of a way, although he's quite inscrutable, we share the same idea of what's going on around us. It must be good to be compared to John Updike and the likes of Saul, Ian McCune. Bello. Bello, yeah. I, yeah. I, I knew John very well. Okay. I, I wrote the preface for his final mm. edition of Rabbit at Rest. Oh, he, he asked me to do it, actually, mm. and he died about a year later. Mm. But there was a great honour for me, mm. and I knew him, and I, I actually revered him. Mm. But um, in a way, more influential to me was Saul Bellow, mm. who had a kind of serious side to his mm. books and also a lot of good jokes and mm. a lot of strange things that happen. And those, those I adapted. And as, as I think you know, I've always under, thought that it's a question of what we are, what we're mm. actually doing, mm. what it is to be human. Mm. And I don't mean that in a pompous way. Mm. But we don't have a very long time. And what on earth are we striving for? Mm. Who told us we had to strive in a certain yeah. way, a moral way or a religious way or any other way? But we're doing that inadvertently by breeding, aren't we? I've never thought of it that way, but it's probably true. You're a fan of philosophy and you have built one of your books around a great British philosopher. Can you tell me about it? Azar Berlin, yeah, a great hero of mine. And what happened really, to put it very simply, is when I came from South Africa, I didn't really, in South Africa, the alternatives were to be part of the ANC, which I absolutely didn't want to be, or to be some form of communist. Mm. And there were lots of opportunities for that. But I thought, no, but I'm, I'm actually a liberal. You know, I believe in being as free as you possibly can be. And when I sort of ran into Isaiah Berlin and read his books, I, it was a great relief for me. Rational, informed, interesting. And really what Azar taught me was, not personally as it happens with his books, what he taught me was that you don't actually have to be involved in some party to be effective. Mm. The idea that 10,000 deluded people are better than one well-informed person mm. is mm. absurd. Mm. Tell me, how did you go about putting him into a book? Well, the story, usually with me, there's something I sort of know mm. about. And the, I, I'm huge, as you probably know, a fan of Oxford, where I've mm. spent four happy years. But next door, not in my time, but earlier, had been Adam von Trott, who mm. was a German who was hanged by Hitler in 1944. And, and he was 
destined to be the ambassador to Britain had the coup succeeded. But there's an interesting thing. Azar, I became very interested. Azar Berlin and he were great friends when they were undergraduates. And when he went back to Oxford, there was a bit of a split between them. And I couldn't understand what had really happened. What had he done to offend Azar, who was the most genial mm. of people? So I wrote a novel, essentially, with this conundrum in the middle of it. But as seen by, as usual with me, somebody who's a bit like me investigating. And I'm just wondering, in taking that approach, what did you learn or how did you solve the problem? Well, I learned an awful lot. I mean, just on a very simple level, there's some footage which mm. I tracked down in the War Museum, which shows the trial of Adam von Trott. And it's he, he, he and some other, these upstanding people, these are very distinguished people in mm. Germany who were in the resistance. Mm. They weren't just any old mm. people. Mm. And von Trott is asked by the Roland Freisler, who's the, uh, the inquisitor. He mm. says, so you were at Oxford so he said, yes, I was. I, I got a scholarship. We got a Rhodes Scholarship. Mm. So I had a scholarship to Oxford. He said, yes, but an English scholarship, says Freisler. So he said, what did you expect to happen after you'd killed Hitler? Did you propose to take over? And he said, genau, which means, yes, exactly. That's what we were, we were going to do. They were incredibly brave. Mm. It goes on. I could mm. bore you. To, oh, he also says to Oxford. Oxford, a breeding place of sedition. You know, and you think, Oxford's not that important. Yeah. It's not that important. People think it is. Anyway, it was fascinating to me. That, and, and Adam von Trott's problem was that I think he felt that his old friends in Oxford had slightly abandoned him and they underrated him when he went back to Germany. And they didn't realize this, uh, the terrible, terrible risks he was mm. taking. You know, when you talk of Nadine, what he mm. did mm. was astonishing. I mean, he did all kinds of highly dangerous things for which he could have had the most appalling punishment. Anyway, so I try to make sense of it. And that is, in some ways, I think my most successful book. I mean, it's quite philosophical. It's a very interesting premise. I'm just wondering how difficult is it to write about a unique friendship, an intellectual friendship of two men who are clearly very brilliant and talented. But you're always an outsider in that. So how you bring truth into that and how you digest that truth through the novel. Well, that's an ex exceptional book for me because mm. it is largely about matters of principle mm. and what, although there's lots of history and there's quite a lot of interpolation from the narrator. But um, yeah, I, I, I just learned a lot. I mean, I, as I saw these, I, I didn't discover, but I, uh, I found these tapes again of the of what happened in 1944, and I was even looking for the footage of them being hanged, which was actually did exist. I mean, disgusting as it would have mm. been, but it never turned up. But it did exist once. But it was more a question of understanding what it means to uh, the kind of society you want. And the problem with Trott, mm. as far as Azar Berlin was concerned, was that he was a Marxist. Mm. And he believed that, you know, these things were going to happen inevitably. Mm. And mm. Azar Berlin just didn't believe that. He mm. believed that we lived a life and it's going to be awkward. It's never going to be resolved. But we must understand that that's how life is. Nothing straight, as he said. And the, the aim is not to develop some half-baked theory about mm. how the world's going to emerge but whether you just live life every day and that's what he said that you know that the song before where is the song before it mm. is sung it's it doesn't exist it's made to exist by people singing when you look at the state of play today in the world you're living in london big commercial capital and you do a lot of foreign travel how do you make sense of all the inequalities i know that you've written other people's money looking at the banking sector and some of the crazy things that happened there. But how do you explain the last 50 years in history? Well, uh, 
I don't know, can't explain it, obviously, but it's been obvious to me in South Africa that inequality is a terrible thing. You know, you people have nothing about to want to kill somebody if they get a chance. You know, there's no amount of police are going to stop that. Mm. And I think at the moment there's a sort of depressing tendency to kill, to knock down, mm. you know, 2,000-year-old buildings in Syria, mm. all kinds of things. It seems so retrograde. We thought we'd gone well mm. past mm. that stage. Mm. And there are certain beliefs in the world mm. out there, which we think, I think, most of us mm. think, I think, and I'm sure you think, are mostly irrational mm. and dangerous and absolutely pointless. Mm. But they happen. Mm. These terrible things happen. People get their heads cut off. You know, the bloke who's in charge of the museum in Syria had his head chopped off. Mm. I mean, he was looking after these things, and these absolute and utter barbarians arrived and chopped his head off. I mean, what's going on? Mm. So in that mm. sense, I think there's an, unset- there's an undercurrent which is unsettling. goes back to, you know, the Twin Towers and so on. There's a, there's a, there's a, and it's not easy to see how we can end it. I mean, I don't, not taking on the role of trying to end it, but not even making any suggestions. I haven't got a clue. You know, I don't think most of us know. was South African novelist Justin Cartwright. Up Against the Night is published by Bloomsbury and retails for about 20 euros in hardback or 12 euros on a Kindle. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And if I'm asked for advice by young people who often say to me, can you tell me how to have a career in politics? I say it's not about a career, it's about a mission. 
We should never be in it for ourselves, but for our values. And for me, these are equality, social justice, equal opportunities, liberty and democracy in a society based on mutual care and mutual support, not the selfishness and greed now so sadly disfiguring Britain. These values underpinned the anti-apartheid struggle and brought me into the Labour Party nearly 40 years ago. But nothing I was able to achieve as an MP or minister was possible without the support of my family. But above all, my mother, Adeline, and, and, and father, Walter, for their values, their courage, their integrity, their morality and principle. My mum, when in jail on her own, was listening to black prisoners screaming in pain. My dad was banned and then deprived of his job. They did extraordinary things. But as Nelson Mandela said, what counts in life is not merely the fact that we've lived, it's what difference we've made to the lives of others. After 50 years in politics, some might say it's time to put your feet up. But I've been lucky to have the best father in the world. And he told me in the mid-1960s, when I was a teenager living in apartheid South Africa, if political change was easy, it would have happened a long time ago. Stick there for the long haul. That's exactly what I'll continue to do after leaving this house, Mr Speaker. And that was veteran Labour politician and campaigner Peter Hayne giving his valedictory speech to the House of Commons in March of this year. Peter Hayne is one of Britain's most respected social justice campaigners and has dedicated his life to speaking out for those living on the margins. Peter was a former Labour MP for Neath and Wales between 1991 and 2015, serving in both the cabinets of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Peter has written a variety of books, including Sing Beloved Country, Mandela, Ad and Wal, and Outside In, a memoir. While Peter's 20th publication, Back to the Future Socialism, is a luminous reflection on what's going wrong with capitalism. Put simply, that capitalism is unfair, discriminatory and totally unstable. Peter resurrects the work of British politician and social theorist Anthony Crossland, who argued in his hard-hitting 1956 book The Future of Socialism on the need for increased public expenditure and greater social equality. Well, I had the great pleasure of talking with Peter Hayne on the publication of his latest book. I asked Peter about the state of leadership and imagination in the UK today and whether the British neoliberal system had failed. I put it to Peter, do we need to scrap austerity? That is essentially what I'm arguing, and I'm using evidence and going back to over history, indeed drawing on John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist who destroyed the whole argument that the way you get rid of the debt and deficits and high borrowing is through cuts. Actually, the way you do it is through investing in growth. It's growth, not cuts that bring the deficit down, the national debt down and borrowing down and put you on the road to a balanced economy. Now, you put quite a case against austerity. And I'm just wondering, within all of that, do you think socialist thinking can be achieved within a market system? Do you think that's actually possible? Yes, and we have seen in the past how those kind of objectives can be achieved. If you go back, and this is why I've called my book Back to the Future of Socialism, if you go back to Anthony Crossland's The Future of Socialism, a very influential book published in the mid-1950s, and that followed a, a, a series of Labour defeats. And it was also at a time when the Labour Party and democratic socialists were lacking self-confidence. And he showed that 
how you could create within a capitalist framework a much more socialist society. And there's no reason why you can't get um, a combination of economic success and social justice if you are determined to reject what I describe as and what is popularly known as neoliberalism. And that has been the dominant orthodoxy since really Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan's time from 1980 onwards. And it uh, is a framework which says that what you have to do is let market forces rip, let um, privatization take place whenever possible. Uh, and my argument is actually when you look at this period historically, you've seen less growth You've seen less economic success, less investment from both the private sector and the public sector. The only beneficiaries have been those right at the top, the very rich. The rest, not just low-income, poor people, but also the middle of society, middle Britain, the middle classes, have lost out in America, in Britain, in Europe, in Ireland, right across the world. It's only the very rich that have benefited. And you present some very startling figures, particularly in relation to ageing populations. It's frightening, isn't it? It is. We live in an ageing society, and that's true of all European societies uh, right across the European Union, of course, um, Britain and, uh, and the Republic of Ireland included. And the only way you're going to deal with the costs in health services and uh, proper care is by greater public support by greater public investment. You can't rely on the lottery of life and people struggling with terrible Alzheimer's uh, in, uh, in, in a loved one or uh, in a member of the family, which basically just takes over everybody's life. And, and that requires not private sector solutions, not relying on insurance and, and, and such mechanisms, because they can't possibly solve the problem. So that means extra taxation. It's the very opposite of what the current neoliberal orthodoxy and, for example, in, in Britain, the Conservative government practices, but we see it right across Europe and the European Union and the treatment of Greece as well. You can't just rely on market forces to solve these problems.